Welcome to Small Pleasures, a podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. In this episode, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Rog Glass, novelist, short story writer, essayist and critic, who is senior lecturer in creative writing at Strathclyde University, where he convenes the MLIT in creative writing. Hi there, delighted to be here. Roger's fiction has won several awards, and most recently he won the Anne Brown Essay Prize 2023 for an essay on The Covenant, which is to be part of a memoir, I believe, called Joshua in the Sky, which is out in September. Yes, that's right. And one of the chapters is a creative response to Faber's work on compassion, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a kind of tragicomic essay about me having an asthma attack on holiday and ending up in the back of an ambulance, unable to get into a hospital because there are no beds. But thankfully, I've brought some Michelle Faber books with me to chat over with the ambulance crew. So that gives you a, a sense of the tone of the thing, I think. Wonderful. And you also have a book published by Liverpool University Press in 2023 about Michelle Faber, the writer and his work. Yes, that's right. That came out in August last year. Excellent. And you're here with us today to discuss Michelle Faber's short fiction, specifically The Fahrenheit Twins and Some Rain Must Fall, which is the title story from the collection of the same name. Welcome. Can you tell us a little about why you chose to write about Faber in this way and how you came to make the proposal in the first place? Yes, of course. Well, there are quite a few reasons going back. I mean, nearly 20 years I've been reading Faber. In the year before I started writing the book properly, I was increasingly becoming interested in compassion in storytelling and how that works and what the difference is between what a compassionate story might look like on the page from one lacking in compassion. In fact, I was also writing Joshua in the Sky at that time, and that's partly also about how we understand the stories of whole lives. The reason being because my nephew Joshua lived for a day and I was attempting to write his biography. So I was often thinking about what what contains the story of a whole life and how might we tell it in a compassionate way. So that was one element. I was also going through quite a difficult personal period in my own life in the wake of Joshua's life and death and my marriage was falling apart. So in, in a very practical sense, I needed a project that will help would help sustain me. I always use writing as a way of coping with whatever is happening around me. So I tend to pick other writers and stories and projects that in a very obvious and practical way helped me cope. So that was part of it. And also I had an opportunity and I'd been at the Michelle Faber International Conference in the University of Highlands and Islands and met Michelle again after a few years of not seeing him. And bit by bit, we struck up a correspondence and I started to see a way of writing that book that would draw on my experience of doing Alistair Gray's biography using correspondence and archives and a personal connection while also trying to do a critical take. And that's where the book came from. Writing about another writer kind of transformed the way you saw the world. Yeah, absolutely. All of the writers that I've become attached to emotionally, I suppose, in my life have transformed the way that I see the world. I first came to Scotland as a teenager, having pretty much run away from the religious community that I grew up in, looking for something to get interested in and to fall for. And what I ended up falling for was contemporary Scottish literature in the first instance. But through the first few writers that I found, of which Alistair Gray was one, that was a way into me trying to explore the world anew or find ways into other communities and places that had been outside of my experience in that religious community, I think. So I tend to throw myself into things, but through fiction found 
ways of exploring, I suppose, parts of the world that otherwise I wouldn't have even thought of. The old George Saunders idea that that he explores in his study of Chekhov's In the Cart, where he talks about the possibility of us investing in Maya in the cart. And even though she's in a different time, a different place, doing something quite mundane, she might have a very different experience to us in another nation, another culture, that in reading that story and investing in her ordinary life, we are forced to accept that there are other ways of seeing the world. And we are forced to accept that these are valid. That, for me, is an example of how reading helped changed the way that I saw things, but also as an example of how I became interested in compassion, because you have to have compassion for characters if you're going to be able to try and understand how they see the world within short stories. I love this focus on compassion. It's such a wonderful angle. It came to me as you were sharing where you were at emotionally at the time of working on your project, that Uh compassion means to suffer with. I'm also impressed that you had the privilege of enjoying this correspondence with Michel Faber. We have two amazing stories to discuss, but perhaps you could quickly develop how this correspondence fed into your work and your appreciation of Faber's stories. Yeah, of course. I, mean, I love talking about this because I'm really interested in how access, a way in and the practical, influence the way that a book is written. And of course, there could be a hundred different valid books out there written about Faber's work. I just had a particular way in. So I had started developing this correspondence, but the nature of the correspondence is greatly influenced by Michelle's personality. I did have some experience from doing this before. My previous biography of Alistair Gray included diary entries where I was sort of the butt of the joke or the background character, and he was in the foreground. It was kind of Johnson and Boswell type thing. So I I was already interested in how you could get to a writer's work through also getting to their personality. But like Alistair, Michelle is neurodiverse, although he didn't use that term for a large part of his life. He now recognises that. Why is that relevant? Well, because there are certain kinds of communication that he excels at and enjoys and others that he will not engage with. So he won't use the phone. He won't use Zoom. Um, There are certain big social situations that don't work for him and are extremely draining. But he really enjoys writing long emails. So from really quite early on in our relationship we were sending very long messages to each other often at strange times of the day or night and those became more revealing and a little bit more personal over time and shared a little bit more off the page but I believe that you can only really get to know a living writer and write something meaningful about them if you're building up trust over time that doesn't mean that you accept everything they say about their own work you need to remain independent and have clear boundaries but my approach across my projects i suppose is to try and build up that real genuine trust over time so i worked out how michelle was comfortable corresponding and he's very frank and intense and emotional at times and this back and forth developed pretty fast and he started then sending me things once he was comfortable doing so. Once he sent me a short story database that detailed every short story that he'd written in different drafts and where they'd been submitted. Then he sent me an unpublished novel and explained why he thought it wasn't good enough. And all of these different ways allowed me to see the work afresh and to start combining the things that anybody can read, which is the published fiction and non-fiction, and start to combine those with kind of access that most people didn't have. Then I got opened up to the University of Dundee Canongate archive. The fact that that relationship was building and trust was there meant that Canongate and Michelle allowed me to see correspondence, editorial reports, disagreements about work in early draft stages, publishing plans, short story collection, debates, 
what would make the cut and why say for some rain must fall all of these things helped me to build up a picture and then he would because it was locked down at times he would send me photographs of his own personal archive um, and photographs of himself and his wife Ava at work on tour all of these things shed more light on his approach to compassion in storytelling and how it applies pressures but also allowed me to see him as a human being because of course you never operate as a writer independent of your life's experience there are two or three events in Faber's life that apply a particular pressure and are particularly relevant to the way that he writes and what's hiding underneath any individual story I love hearing about this respectful intimacy that you built up, how that affected your work. The trust, and that is so important. And I think you can tell that actually when you read the book that you've produced. Perhaps you'll tell us a little about the two key stories we're discussing in this episode, the Fahrenheit Twins and Some Rain Must Fall. Well, Faber does two or three kinds of stories. One is the fantastic, one's the mundane, and, and three is the fantastic and the mundane. Sometimes these seem a little disguised because... One of the things that's so noticeable about his work immediately is that he's always ranging across form and genre in particular. He has no real comfort zone. So it's sometimes not too easy to spot that there are these three types. Two of these stories that we're about to look at today are set in the real world, though in radically different ways. Although I know not everybody sees the Fahrenheit Twins being set in the real world, and that in itself is interesting. Yeah, in fact, it's kind of changing the way I read reading his work, because certainly initially I didn't see Fahrenheit Twins as being set in the real world. But we'll come back to that and to sure. setting. Can you say a little about how you think these stories sit with Faber's other work? Well, they're typical of Faber's stories in certain ways, one of which is that nearly all of his stories are about the search for connection and trying to treat others with a recognition of their humanity, even if they're very different to you. I'll just say this very briefly, but that's rooted partially in the fact that Faber himself was brought up in a house by parents who were literally Nazi collaborators in Holland, a house of silence and shame, and he was horrified by that. Much of the work is an argument back against that way of seeing the world. So that's one thing that I think is in, in both of them. But also something like the Fahrenheit Twins is typical of Faber's stories that are set in extreme landscapes. And of course, the landscape applies a particular kind of pressure to how characters treat each other. I like these two stories together as some Ramus Fall sees these contrasting attempts at a meaningful connection, one between a teacher and her pupils. And then in the Fahrenheit Twins, we've got one between two characters who uniquely for any Faber story feel that they are truly connected at the story's outset, like they intimately and truly understand each other and can't imagine a world where they might not, though by the end of the story, that connection is changed or, or fractured. All of Faber stories really see characters trying to bridge this impossible divide, and that might be between humans and humans. It's often between humans and animals. That's often the most effective way of people communicating in Faber stories. Or it could be humans and environments, like in something like Under the Skin. So he talks about how valiantly we, we strive to bridge that divide, even when that is nearly impossible. And I just love how these stories show us genuine attempts at connection, but also show us how difficult it is to mean well, to do well, to try. And that really, I suppose, is what drew me to Faber in the first place, and what keeps me interested now. It's really exciting to hear you using this word, pressure 
nature in relation to landscape, compassion? Because so often, particularly with the short story, young writers will be told that they have to create conflict. I find it very expanding to think that there can be other things um, like like the, the pressure to connect. You're absolutely right. That is often advice that's given to new writers as if conflict as if argument, <laughs> a kind of argument between characters is the only way to either move a story forward or to make it live in some vibrant way, line to line. But I like the word pressure because it allows for internal pressures, external pressures, pressures of environment, place, temperature, which is often important in paper stories, the pressures of the past and the present. And yes, conflict might be a part of that, but it's not everything. Well, I thought it might make sense to start with the earlier story to allow us to consider Faber's journey as a writer, perhaps. And I know Sonia has some questions to ask about Some Rain Must Fall. I do. Thanks, Lily. Many questions. And I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to hear your insights on Some Rain Must Fall. Um, it's always a joy to hear Livy's thoughts on this occasion. I'm especially curious to hear both your and her thoughts about the Fahrenheit Twins, as I couldn't get a copy of the book in France. The, the price was over €125. Euros. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible. So, yeah, I love this emphasis that you've been placing on connection. There is a flip side to this, as you've already mentioned, and that's our failure to connect. And this maybe relates to what you highlight about Faber's recurrent focus on alienation and separation. So I'd like to know how does this characteristic come into play or manifest in Faber's work? Yeah, so how does the failure to connect or the attempt to connect, how does that speak to this business of, of alienation and separation? Almost all characters in Faber, at least all protagonists, if you look across his short fiction, novels, non-fiction, it's all as if they've been picked up on an alien planet or place and dropped in a landscape where they can never belong. As we should be, are often uh, reluctant to say, and this is what happened in the author's childhood, and glue those things together as if that explains everything. Of course it doesn't, but it's no accident that a version of this happened to Faber in his childhood. So seeking to escape the experience in in Holland, both of his parents emigrated with him when he was seven years old to Australia. In fact, they left both of his siblings behind, his older siblings behind, and he didn't see them for many, many years afterwards. So that is an obvious cleaving at a very young age. He was dropped into a school in Australia without a word of English and tried to run away so that language is partially how you might feel as an outsider in some place. And also he was moving from somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere with quite a mild climate to somewhere in Australia that was so incredibly hot, it gave him these intense migraines. So being dropped in a landscape where you feel like you're on some kind of alien planet, that's something that makes complete sense for Faber's stories. I think if you put that together with the fact that he was always looking to argue against this upbringing that he'd had and look for the possibilities of leaping over nationality, culture, race, gender through his storytelling, I think that starts to feel like something that's coherent. I mean, that's the beginning of a much, much longer conversation. But his work is preoccupied with that sense of alienness. It's very, very prevalent and under the skin and in the novellas, but in lots of the short stories. Just one from this book, Sun Rain Must Fall, is Toy Story, which is the story of God not quite being able to reach the people of Earth. So God is alienated and separated from the people of Earth, even though he can see them. So this is right across the work. And it's one of those things that's not really blatantly obvious right at the beginning. I suppose it's like anything when you spend 
too long with anyone writer's work, as I obviously have done with Michelle Faye, but you start seeing the same thing everywhere. Uh, and that's something to guard against sometimes, but I find it quite liberating to be able to spot that consistency across the work and that these elements, alienation, separation and connection were not in tension with each other necessarily, but were part of the same picture. I find it very enriching to have this biographical backdrop it does alter the reading perhaps as you say but it certainly deepens and enriches it when we were prepping for this session I was very touched by your your focus on connection and I was also fascinated because in some rain before it was alienation that emerged most strongly for me and as we've mentioned these are perhaps the same thing two sides of the same coin but what came through for me in that story was the perhaps self-imposed or maybe even subconscious isolation there's a, a female protagonist called Frances who's formidably good at her job as a troubleshooting teacher for traumatized kids she's described as a control freak and she's developed this to a kind of art form to have positive impact on the world around her. She describes her partner as hopelessly safe. And the story opens with Frances' knowledge that her relationship is in crisis. She wants a child, her partner does not. And even in moments of closeness, there's this sense of insurmountable isolation. The connection she orchestrates with the kids isolate her because to give them what they need, she must deface herself and become someone she's not. And her excellence isolates her from her peers. Her desire for a child isolates her from her partner. And even while lovemaking, her mind wanders to work. So I felt the promise of connection, but more a really tragic sense of isolation in the story. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the promise of connection is a good way to put it. Faber's always talking about how what fascinates about the human condition is, is these attempts at connection. And the promise of connection is perhaps another similar way of thinking about that. The promise of something that isn't there. So that's connected to why we might then feel that tragic sense of isolation. But you're quite right as well that Francis in, the, in these multiple ways is sort of Choose, she's either choosing to isolate herself or she doesn't have any choice, but she has to work within it. And that is somehow her strength as well. And in Michelle Faber, Critical Essays, Michelle writes only a page or two at the start in an introduction, but he identifies that particular issue. He describes how what fascinates him about the human condition is our, quote, valiant attempts at connection, ever in hope, even when this might seem unlikely or impossible, um, which, of course, may lead to feeling a keener sense of isolation. Like in Fish, for example, another one of his great early short stories, when the mother and daughter must admit their inability to connect, they hug each other and attempt comfort anyway. And I love that. I really love this quote, Elliot attempts at connection. There's something very brave and beautiful about that that really touches me. So I know Livy wants to talk a little about Faber's handling of psychology. In this story, I felt something that I would frame in terms of feeling held at one remove emotionally. And this distance seemed to wonderfully suit the story Some Rain Must Fall, because the protagonist is supposedly a control freak who's adept at observing and decoding people's emotions to establish what they need. But she doesn't empathise as such, it seemed to me. And her own feelings seemed mysterious to her too. Her need to control less and for her partner to be an equal adult in their relationship, not a well-behaved child, translates as a desire for him to be violent towards her. And I noticed this distance in other stories, such as Fish, which you've mentioned. The emotional climax in that story of the mother's angry outburst at her child seemed to invite me to observe rather than feel. In the collection Some Ramus Hall, almost all the stories are written in the third person, and only Tunnel of Love is written in the first. And this was the only story where I felt able to really inhabit the protagonist. 
Is it fair to say that Faber tends to keep a certain emotional distance? This is so interesting. Yes, I think that's completely fair. Although when I'm reading the work, I don't necessarily feel that. I can't remember whether I did when I first read these stories 20 years ago and more. I, I'm looking for different things now, I think. And like any writer of a book about a writer, I have my own agenda. I think I can see patterns. I feel like there are all kinds of things that I will be bound to miss or that through focusing on certain things, I'll just not see others. So I confess that I haven't really felt that emotional distance. And because I have this kind of obsession with compassion and looking for connection and closeness, and also because I myself am super sensitive, I'm all sunshine and candy floss at times, but tears at children's films at other times. I, I tend to feel everything emotionally intensely anyway. So in that moment that you mentioned there, which is one of my absolute favourite moments in Faber, full stop, where you've got the mother, Janet, and the daughter, Kif Kif. They both see this serious danger to them in this apocalyptic world. And the mother is horrified by what's happened and is just, just devastated that they find themselves in this place. And she notices that her daughter is kind of excited by it because she doesn't remember any other world except the one that she's being raised in. That's this moment that proves to them that they're both experiencing this world in such radically different ways. It's almost as if they're living in different universes. And yet they are still a society of two. I read that as emotional closeness, uh, partly because the story starts with them embracing each other, a little bit like the end of Sun Must Fall, and also finishes with them embracing each other, despite all that emotional distance, if you like. But I'm super conscious that lots of other readers will read it differently and that there are lots of Faber stories where partially because of that third person of controlled, understated thing that's undeniable, that could read as emotional distance. This is one of the wonderful things about discussing a text, the different views that emerge in. It's special to share this. Your word agenda is so brilliant. You highlight how we go looking for what a text can give on its own terms, but also we go looking for what we need. And I'm thinking again of that word you use, compassion, suffering with. This really highlights for me one of the great powers of literature. It's impossible to feel lonely with a book because you're feeling and thinking with other humans. If you have a book, you're not alone. Absolutely. Also, um, just to touch on very briefly, what I was thinking while you said that, that it's so rare that you would hear somebody who writes about literature admitting anything at all about their own agenda or, you know, as if there's something shameful about it or something that's invisible or that doesn't matter. I actively embrace that and I don't feel ashamed about it at all. I don't think there's anything really remarkable about it even. The only thing that's remarkable perhaps is that usually people don't talk about it. Now I went to Faber's work because I needed something from it and also because I had a practical opportunity to publish in a way that, you know, there's loads of writers, short story writers I'd love to write about, but I don't have the opportunity to, or my opportunity is more limited. At the last DNSFR conference, I spoke about Arena Sunakoji, for example. I'd love to write about her, but I can't get anybody to okay me to write that book. <laughs> so I, I think that the practical is important and that impacts on the way that you read the work, how you frame the work, how you make sense of the work and how you present it to others. But one thing Alistair Gray always used to say was, even if you are also driven by a desire for like, fame and money, <laughs> uh, if there's something that doesn't exist and you want it to exist, that in itself is good enough reason to make it. And those are my motivations for doing this thing. But I think it's really important that when you're talking to other people about any writer's work, you're not presenting it as if you are standing at the top of the mountain telling everybody else what it means. Yeah, it seems much more honest. Because as you say, it's, it's always going to be personal. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, part of what I see in the work 
is because of what I bring to it and my own past, my own traumas, my own interests and loves and needs. Um, I even read Some Rain Must Fall differently because of the age of my own children at the time that I was reading, rereading the story for the book. You don't need to obsess about all of those things on the page and it's not a book about me in a lot of ways it's very buttoned up and it's quite straightforwardly a critical book but when we're discussing it it's something worth embracing to discuss even just for a little while how what you bring personally and politically to, to a work might change it some rain must fall seemingly self-consciously places the female protagonist in the central role so Frances's name opens the story and the first paragraph features her partner in a traditionally female role having prepared her meal and Faber has the partner ask how are the kids and the narrator makes a point of stating that the kids in question are not theirs this both acknowledges and frustrates any expectations about this being a traditional couple and the woman conforming to stereotypes of lover, mother, etc. The characterization seemed not so much an end in itself, but more a means directed toward asking questions of society or challenging society. Yes, completely agree. Um, there's a lot of that across many of these stories over the last 20 years in different ways. Also, about 90% of Faber's protagonists are female across all of his fiction, the short stories especially. He's often confused in the UK for a female author because of his name. And that happens in lots of countries, actually. And that does change expectations in an interesting way, I think, for some readers. If they think they're reading a female author, how does that affect their reading or does it at all? Also, he was assumed to be gay at school. His only friends were female. He was a radical feminist as a teenager and great greatly influenced by feminisms in the 1980s and 1990s. I've always been interested in kind of masculinities in writing and but unusual types of or non-traditional types of masculinity in writers and how this maps onto their work. So this is an area of interest for me anyway. But very few of his female protagonists follow traditionally female roles and where they do, these are problematized. I, I found that fascinating and I really enjoyed the diversity of the collection but one thing that emerged for me was that it sometimes seemed more hegemonic than one might think. There are the stories The Tunnel of Love and Half a Million Pounds in a Miracle for example uh-huh. that seem to represent that dominant narrative of a woman who steps into a plot in order to support a hero in achieving his aim. Yeah. And I've, I felt strong resistance when reading accounts of Faber's journey to writing because his story felt very familiar in some respects, but also alien because inaccessible. Women writers I know have a radically different journey into writing. So I'm aware that he had initial struggles and he had the great good fortune to meet with a woman who recognised his talent, perhaps also his difficulties and his needs, and suggested that he give up the day job for a time. And with her support, he went on to achieve the recognition and international success that he so completely deserves. This account focuses on the writer's struggle, but it seems to me that there's an apparent blind spot around his privilege, which also undoubtedly comes into play and perhaps decisively given societal bias. When reading Faber, I was revisited by a play I saw a few weeks before called Carte Noire Nommé Désir by mm-hmm. Rebecca Chaillon, with translated over titles by Kate Brown. And Chaillon's play explores what it is to be a black female, and the play is 
stupendous. It's still revisiting me at odd moments, working on me. And Shayong got critical acclaim, but also aggression and abuse. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help comparing this with what I was reading about Faber's journey and the reception of his work. And I tried to count how many plays I'd seen by white men compared to this one by a black woman. I'm not a big theatre goer, but it was too many to count to one. And so I guess my question is, in discussion of Faber's work, is there any exploration around how his privilege, as well as his hardships, informed his work and affected his journey to success and recognition? Yeah, I think so, but probably not enough. And so it's well worth pointing it out and concentrating on it for a little while. I'm really interested in how privilege works. And um, it's undoubtedly the case with Faber. And of course, there are echoes with the lives of many other white male writers that he had the critical support of our woman and over a long period of time. I was super conscious of this while I was writing because Faber is so often pointing towards Ava, his wife, they were together for 26 years and crediting her. They often did interviews together. He would often call her a collaborator. She would sometimes play that down and she preferred the word uh, helper, which he also used in reference to his help in her photography work. But I mean, I, I definitely think that there should be more focus on this. And there are certainly things that discomfort me about it. What's so fascinating about privilege is that you can have undeniable types of privilege, which might be gendered, for example, but also not be privileged in other ways. And an awareness of how these things play into not only how we read a, a published story, but also whether that story got published in the first place, how it was received, how that human being who made the story was sustained over a long period of time. Questions over if the work would even be seen if it was the work of a woman or the work of a black woman or in certain societies. These are all things we should always be poking away at and never getting comfortable about. Faber's relationship with his wife, Ava, was so fascinating for lots of reasons. First of all, he was married before to another writer. They were both aspiring writers at the time. That marriage didn't last for very long. When he and Ava did get together, right from the very beginning before their relationship started, discussions of his work were integral. So for two stories, Fish and Miss Fat and Miss Thin, she gave extremely strident feedback on both of those stories. And he said that right from the beginning, this was part of what attracted him to her. So there's a legitimate question there about, you know, was this something we might feel uncomfortable with about the nature of that support? That said, I think there are uh, some other interesting elements that complicate our understanding of whether Faber was simply privileged or not. Partially, it was just his like, absolute economic destitution and the fact that he worked for many, many years as a nurse. And when they moved to Scotland, it was often costing him more to get to the care home and back than he was earning there. So the giving up of the job wasn't really losing much, I suppose. There's so much to say here. I just want to add one more thing for now, which is that Ava, whenever Faber got stuck, she would sometimes write sections of where he was stuck or would challenge him and then in order to be able to get him going. He also did something similar with her writing, but she wasn't keen on publishing her writing and saw herself primarily as a photographer. I mean, there's no shortage of further detail here, but the question of privilege is one that we should always be unsettled about. And it, actually, it doesn't bother me that you felt resistance there. I think that resistance is totally understandable. I like your insistence on the complexity of privilege and the complex dynamics. It's never a binary. It's never yeah. privileged or unprivileged. We're, we're always a difficult mixture of all of these things. Of course, gender plays a key role in the fact 
Fahrenheit Twins as well, which is also the title story of the collection. I feel that I should describe the story a little and just say that it, it is set in an Arctic kind of setting, a very isolated setting. And the twins are born to much older parents who are involved in research, anthropological research, one kind or another, and the twins are left to grow up pretty much on their own and it's when their mother dies that the story takes a different art for me and the twins go on a journey with her but initially the twins are described as identical in every way in pre-adolescence but gradually throughout the story they come to differ in their thoughts and their emotional responses until at the end Marker Kane envisages a life of trying and failing to comfort his sister in her distress while Tainter Lilith fears that her role will be to keep her brother's more violent impulses in check and of course, their parents are very different, particularly in their response to the children. To what extent do you see this as being a story about gender? This is a story about so many things, but absolutely it's a story about gender. We've got identical twins who feel that they intuitively understand each other completely. They're told a kind of horror story by their mother when they're young, that their bodies will change and that this will separate them. And they laugh at her because they cannot possibly imagine a world in which they do not feel the same as each other. And then as the story plays out, you get increasing references to the biological and emotional differences between them. We can discuss how many of those might be labelled as related to gender or not. But at one point, when Marco Kane sort of feels sure about something related to their mother, he says, I feel it in my testaments, <laughs> which means it's testicles, <laughs> uh, which is one of my favourite lines. And this is a, a, an indicator of, of how their sexual maturity is going to be at least one part of how they become separated over time. And the moment at the end of the story where they end up in the bath, and with that moment of attempting consoling each other again, which echoes fish and which echoes some rain must fall, it's very hard to deny that gender is absolutely critical to, to, to any reading of the story, really, I think. Do you think that to some extent the emphasis on gender difference is because of the kind of mythic underpinning of the story, which draws on the myth of the fall? And the story of the fall, of course, also has an emphasis on gender. Yeah, I, I, I think that's undeniable too. Clearly, this is like a kind of a Garden of Eden, an Arctic Garden of Eden at the top of the world, the icy zenith at the top of the world, as Faber calls it. And they are sort of left to their own devices by parents who might be standing for God, maybe. I'm no expert in this particular field. And this is one of the stories where I felt like there is definitely a, a better reading than mine <laughs> that focuses on the fall here. I was seeing the Fahrenheit twins in the context of these other stories that are about attempts at connection that are produced in slightly different ways, using different genres, modes, settings, landscapes to disguise the repetition of this narrow emotional territory. But I absolutely think that there are strong echoes of the fall here. Um, I'm quite interested in Ospera Providenia itself, which is a slightly misspelled version of somewhere real, an, an Arctic station, Russian station at the top of the world, an Arctic Eden, which is then untouched and then spoiled somehow by the German anthropologists moving into it, but also by the children traversing that snow and literally putting their feet in the snow. Yeah, I mean, personally, I love stories with a mythic resonance, and I think some of the greatest literature has it, such as Ridley Walker or Zile Dying. Yes. Adds an extra dimension or invites us to read a more universal meaning into the story. But also the story has to work on its own or it just becomes allegory with a one-dimensional interpretation. 
Would you agree with that? And do you think Faber achieves this here, possibly by not making the correspondences too literal, consistent or exact? And thinking of the naming, for instance. So we've got Mark of Cain, Cain being the son of Adam and Tain to Limith as Adam's first wife. But then we have Boris and Una, their parents, who seem specifically German, and the name Fahrenheit, of course. Yes, absolutely. He avoids the, the literal nearly always. The line that you just said there about the myth adding an extra dimension or inviting a more universal meaning, but that the story has to work on its own terms or it just becomes allegory. That is a real high wire act and a lot of writers attempt it and don't get it right. I think that's yeah. a very interesting element of the story. I agree with you. I think I... it is a popular German name too. I might be wrong, but Fahrenheit, because it's a story about temperature, I think, and how it applies pressure. There's that word again. But again, I don't think any of these things are as simple as a right or a wrong answer. I mean, that's right. And I think one of the ways in which the story changed for me as I was reading it is that it is multifaceted. But to me, it does seem to be about humanity in the largest sense. So it's, you know, it's got that tremendously large scope in it in the way that myths have. There are oblique references to Eden and to a book of knowledge. And the cruelty in the story seems to come from the quest for knowledge or from desire and self-preservation. The cruelty of the children's ritual, for instance, which is quite startling and chilling. Yeah, that is a chilling moment. Not least because they see their violence as a kind of sacred ritual. You know, they're, they're, they're looking around searching for how to do the right thing. They're talking about being honourable to each other. And in that context, that violence really stands out. They're also trying to put off ageing, aren't they? Yes, and partly because they've been told that it will separate them and they don't want to be separated. These are neglected children that only have each other, really, and the huskies. As in many places in Faber stories, the animals are where humans find the most satisfying connection. But aside from the huskies, they really only have each other. So they see ageing as this thing that is terrifying, that's in the distance, that they're hoping to resist. They're, of course, being betrayed by their father and their mother has also isolated them in a house of silence, like Faber. She only says a handful of words, so her words take on this outsized importance. They're leaving for another home among people that their parents have arguably taken advantage of, and the indigenous community. And again, that's Faber's childhood right there. It's just slightly disguised. Yeah, so interesting. And the setting is fascinating. I mean, why do you think he chose this Arctic wilderness for the background to the story? I mean, there's the other Nordic kind of elements, the Germanic yeah. back parents and the Scandinavian Miss Christensen at the end. Yeah, I'll just pick up on the Arctic wilderness background. One of the things you can see consistently across Faber's fiction over about 30 or 40 years, even and especially when he's doing all of this genre hopping in the short story, is that he can uses extreme landscapes so often to charge the stories in some way. In Under the Skin, the Highlands operates as a kind of extreme landscape the Planet of Oasis does that in the Book of Strange New Things. That's about a deeply caring Christian missionary trying desperately to do right by the compassionate aliens, and of course failing sometimes, but not always. There are stories like The Crust of Hell, which are set on Earth, but in a place that doesn't feel like Earth because the landscape is so extreme. So interplanetary or on Earth, he's done this so many times, and environments apply pressure to characters after all. Yes, and interesting that mention of aliens, because what about the anthropological elements in this story, the Guhinui? Is that how you pronounce it? The honest answer, Livy, is I do not know. I've That's always said Guhinui, and nobody's ever uh, contradicted okay. me, but I'm here to learn. So no, no, um, why, why don't we ever see then? Yeah, well, I mean, that's critical, isn't it? 
what we see is the Fahrenheit twins' families distance from the Gendini. Um, this is an indigenous population who are used, but who are kind of irrelevant as far as the children are concerned, at least at the start of the story, until we see that they are, of course, indigenous themselves through their father. They, there's this shocking moment in the story for them where they enter into this sacred place where their mother has obviously spent a large part of their childhoods. There's a mural of her holding hands with an indigenous man who's clearly their father. I think what it's worth that not showing the Gainui directly except through the symbolism of this mural, that forces us readers to see that exploitation it becomes completely undeniable. Fahrenheit twins live as if in this Eden untouched by anyone else. But of course, it's not an Eden untouched by anyone else. This land belongs to a community. Yes, and obviously there's a lot of comment about anthropology and colonialism in this story. So it has a political as well as a mythic resonance. As many of Faber's stories do, in fact, I'm coming to see that as his distinctive mark as a writer, the unusual and effective blend of the socially real, the mythical and the political, so quite difficult often to separate out which stories are socially realistic and which are more mythical or fantastical. Agreed. You know, when I began to see that, I began to read him differently. That's what I meant at the beginning about, it's changed the way that I read his story. But back to the question of gender difference, why do you think Tainter Lilith cries at the end? There's been a lot to cry about in this story. But this particular grief seems to me to be non-specific. There's that lovely word in German that means world sadness. Is it Welsh Welsh? Mm, yeah, it's a great word. So interesting to me that that grief seemed non-specific to you. I agree, but I also saw it completely differently. I can see how it would seem non-specific in, in a sense. It is. There's definitely evidence for that. But, but for me, it seemed directly related to something. So... I can't say for sure, and part of what I love about Faber's stories is the space in them for us to be able to see them in different ways. They're not didactic. But for this reader, me, I think she cries because the, the betrayal of their father is so obvious they can't pretend it's not there. And because she knows she has to face a future where she has evidence now that she and her brother see the world differently, which is what they were warned about early on. When the Fahrenheit twins set off on their crusade to find somewhere to bury their mother, and she is on the back of the thing that they're dragging behind them, pulled by the Huskies. They suspect that their father was trying to get rid of them, but they didn't know. And now they've returned to find that he is shocked and disappointed because he tried to kill them. <laughs> and he is living a life free of the responsibilities of fatherhood. And he is in another relationship, clearly, that he thought he was free to live now that his wife was dead. And the children can't really pretend that away. So I thought that the tears came from that forced realization which for me wasn't necessarily about gender it was just about humanity and because in, in the moment the brother can't imagine why his sister is upset and she can't imagine why he isn't very touched by that reading wouldn't the proof of difference from others as a cause for profound distress it's a heartbreaker <laughs> it is it is heartbreaking even just listening to to both of you speaking and the link to to myth that Livy raised is coming back to me and I'm thinking of the various creation myths in Judeo-Christian traditions with the disputed origin of Eve and the idea yes. that the first human was hermaphrodite and Eve was born not of a rib but of Adam's whole side that he was split mm -hmm. so each human is a half desperate to be whole some Ramus fall as a collection often seem to me a to be about humans reaching to be whole 
and this being a tragic impossibility. So it's really interesting to hear it coming up in your discussion of the Fahrenheit Twins. It's worth mentioning that the Fahrenheit Twins was a story that was rooted in the same historical period as many of the stories that Some Rain Must Fall. Faber wrote for 20 years plus without making any attempt to publish at all. He was simply writing as a way of managing the world around him and expressing himself in a world he didn't feel any other way to be able to do it comfortably. But if you see those echoes to Some Rain Must Fall and the stories in that collection, it's because they are rooted in the same historical period of writing. How do you see Faber's journey as a writer between the two books? What's so interesting for me about these two books is that many of the stories were written in the many years before Some Rain Must Fall was published. Over a hundred were considered for that collection, which you can see in the University of Dundee Canongate archive. And the Fahrenheit Twins itself was rejected from that first collection as the publisher didn't really respond to it. And though it was then reappraised and it became one of Faber's most successful stories and the title of his second collection. It also became a really successful play. It was an audio book that was done with music by Brian Eno. It's just one of these stories that's gone way beyond the collection. But Faber wrote for two decades before even trying to publish at all. So it's really hard to pass the timeline. Stories that you think are later, or in fact, earlier, uh, earlier stories didn't get published till many years later. It's really, the timeline is all over the place. Amazing. And I think his work is certainly some of the most distinctive among contemporary writers today, partly because of that fusion of the mythic and the socially real and the political. It'll be so interesting to see what he produces next. Thank you so much, Rog, for sharing your expertise and insight into this fascinating writer. And if our listeners are interested in learning more, then your book would be a great place to start. I can thoroughly recommend it. It's full of insight and also it's really accessible to read a thorough introduction to his short stories and to his novels. Can you remind us of the title and publication detail? I will but let me say first I'll take that as high compliment (laughs) if it's accessible that's what I wanted it to be. The title is simply Michelle Faber. It's part of the Writers and Their Work series that has got its 30th anniversary this year. Other great volumes by Elsa Cox who I know has appeared on this podcast, Robert Shepard, many others. So it's just Michelle Faber and it's published by by Liverpool University Press. Great. We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of Small Pleasures and that you'll tune in again because we have many more great short stories to discuss. Until then, it's goodbye from our guest, Dr. Roger Glass. Goodbye, thank you. And goodbye from me and from Sonia. <laughs>